Hello everyone, it's Dr. Sam. I'd like to welcome you to my Eye Clarity Podcast. This is a show that offers cutting edge information on how to improve your vision and overall wellness through holistic methods. I so appreciate you spending part of your day with me. If you have questions, you can send them to hello at drsamburn.com. Now to the latest Eye Clarity episode. of all, wears glasses and when, what you might want to expand upon there is actually what is the prescription and where that would be valuable uh, to me would be, you know, are they farsighted? Are they nearsighted? Do they wear prisms? Uh, are, do they have astigmatism? Do they wear bifocals? Um, and why that's important is that over time, what I would like to teach you is the behavioral manifestations of what does it mean to be farsighted? What does it mean to be nearsighted in terms of behavior, spatial understanding, posture, movement, emotional responses? So just as an example, if somebody is nearsighted, they tend to be very uh, defensive. And it can be um, physically defensive, it can be emotionally defensive. There's usually a trauma uh, related to nearsightedness. And you could also put on there, you know, when they got their first prescription, was it at infancy? Was it when they were a toddler? Um, because the earlier they get the prescription, the more the, uh, the eyes have taken on some preverbal imprint. Uh, what I have seen is the higher the number, the earlier the vision problem has occurred. And this can even go back into gestation. You know, this, this opens up a whole other uh, conversation. Say somebody who's highly farsighted or highly nearsighted I ask questions about, well, what happened in gestation, you know, so, and then it comes down to on the reflex level, the fear paralysis and the moro, it just gives you information. Um, and then you could get into things like strabismus and amblyopia could also be part of that as well. For example, I was working with a, a, a child the other day who had amblyopia in the left eye and we discovered in gestation that she had been laying on her left side and, uh, you know, there was ended up being a breech birth and <clears throat> eye associates wanted to do a surgery on the eye because there was a bit of esotropia as well. And I said, no way, we're not doing that. There was torticollis. So there, there's, there's things to understand about that prescription. On the other side of it, farsighted, you know, those, those folks tend to push the world away. So they want things a lot bigger than they really are. And their tonicity, their arousal is usually lower. Um, so by being able to insert the, the prescription, then at one of our classes, we could go into how the prescription relates to a person behaviorally and uh, so on. 
The third condition, astigmatism, is a twist in the body. And this sometimes is related to neck issues, cervical compression, <clears throat> uh, some spinal uh, issues. And uh, so, again, knowing th that there's astigmatism and how that might affect posturally, that might affect some of the other reflex things that you're doing based on the handout that you, you gave me. I've been studying that and seeing how myopia, hyperopia, and astigmatism would relate to those reflexes and where you might want to jump into it. And then prisms. Are kids wearing prisms? A lot of the eye doctors prescribe, you know, a prism in one eye, which I don't agree with. And uh, we usually take the prisms out. <clears throat> and then what we do is we might prescribe some kind of yoke prisms. Bifocals are another issue. A lot of times these kids just can't wear bifocals. So we have to figure, figure that out. Um, so I guess you could plug into at what level you want to, but at least including the numbers um, would be really great. So my recommendation is to do, uh, do it with it on and do it with it off. <clears throat> and this is where you're going to get subjectively, you know, um, you can you can do the things right below there like watery red yawning squinting like you could add you could add those behavioral observations with the glasses on with the glasses off you may discover like you intuitively know many times i've heard this from from you guys that you know this prescription just doesn't seem right for this child and you would be able to determine based on some of the, you know, the tracking things you might be doing uh, that you would say, yeah, that's right. The glasses actually make it worse. And um, I mean, this is a whole big world because the glasses prescription has a whole story of what it's reflecting on so many levels. But we could keep it simple in that you could have, okay, a, a positive, and then the number means it's farsighted. A negative next to the number means it's nearsighted. And then a cylinder, CYL, means it's astigmatism. And then the, the number next to the astigmatism is the meridian that is the weakest in the visual field. So, um, you know, it, it, we could start off really simple by just listing the prescription and maybe doing the, the testing with the glasses on and glasses off. And then at the classes, we could, uh, I could teach you guys how to do it. And then we could come up with something that a new therapist could just look at it and go, oh, farsighted, that means this. Nearsighted, oh, that means that. If he's nearsighted, we have to work on these things. If he's farsighted, we work on these things. If he's got astigmatism, we work on these things. Another thing that's telling is where did they receive vision therapy? You know, was it from Dr. X in Wichita Falls? Was it Dr. Y from Albuquerque? Because um, what I have found is a lot of people that come to see me have already done vision therapy. And it tells me a lot about, you know, what kind of vision therapy, where was it? And um, 
maybe just a little bit more about you know where did you get it and sometimes you can get records that can be helpful i mean most vision therapy practices are not doing primitive reflexes they're not even doing the depth of what you're doing in this screening and yet they have some foundation but it's going to be really really different and maybe the vision therapy they did didn't help at all you know that's that happens a lot that's my narrative when people come to see me and the way you're working the way i'm working you're going to create very deep level change um, in your therapy and it's different than the cookbook eyeball eye exercise therapy that most uh, optometrists are doing in vision therapy the doctor isn't even in the room you know so eye surgery do you want to ask a little more about um, you know when how many times what eye um, that might be valuable was was the eye turned in before the surgery you know what was the diagnosis before the surgery and what does it look like after the surgery that might be helpful to to have that and is it strabismus surgery was it another kind of surgery um, you know some some of these kids they develop um, congenital cataracts I've had a number of cases where kids develop cataracts so that's a different surgery where they have to get a contact lens as an example so that things aren't so blurry I have a case right now from California they did cataract surgery and they never put a contact lens on the eye so he's got amblyopia and the ophthalmology didn't want to do anything we put a contact lens on him and now he's like oh i've got a right eye and school is better and everything is is going well so what kind of eye surgery is it lazy eye okay with that again you might want to which eye is lazy which eye is it the right? Is it the left? Something else about that, and not that you need to write this down, but um, when kids come from another doctor's office, a lot of times where they're coming from is that they've been told to patch eight hours a day, which sets up and the moral reflex to amp up and um, because it doesn't work and it creates more of those reflex patterns like really up in the nervous system. So in any therapist that's has a, where their child has a history of lazy eye and they've done a lot of patching, I would definitely check uh, fear paralysis and Moro because it could be uh, much higher than it was based on having to be confined in an eye patch over time. Um, with watery eyes again you can determine is this more allergy based or is it more functionally based um, some kids that have functional vision problems they do have watery eyes other kids it's an allergy um, you know in the infants they were putting in the antibiotic drops right after birth and I was seeing a lot of uh, infants who had watery eyes after that because they were allergic to the antibiotic or the eye drop that they put put in, which I don't agree or recommend that. So a little more deeply in the watery eyes. In the red eyes, how long? Is it both eyes? Is it one eye? 
when does the red eye, when are the red eyes the worst? Is it when they wake up in the morning? Uh, that's going to tell you that there's probably chronic uh, adrenal fatigue. And if it's towards the end of the day, then it may be more functional. Um, so just a little more specifics on, you know, when the red eyes, is it both eyes? Is it one eye more than the other? Yawning's fine. Squinting, uh, eye itching, rubbing, you know, those are great. Closing one eye, head tilt, um, complaints of eye strain, headaches, double vision. Now with the double vision, what I like to do is I actually, during the exam, I like to ask the child directly, do you ever see two? And the reason why I do that is because a lot of times kids don't know what two means or they're embarrassed uh, to admit that. And most of the time they'll say, yeah, I do see two and the parents are really surprised by that admission. So that can be really uh, insightful uh, around um, that, you know, that, that sharing. And then complains in bright light, that's a huge one because that's saying that the, the nervous system is really in a, a deep sympathetic state, uh, fight, flight, freeze, um, and then you're going into those reflexes again, like the fear paralysis and the and the moro, just to, to just as a start. Uh, but that's an indicator. It's a couple other things about the bright light, and you you did this below with the pupil response. A dilated pupil re, uh, reflects that there is a constriction in the peripheral vision, so the visual field is usually reduced. It can also be uh, in some cases, if this is a school-age child, where they have what we call the non-malingering syndrome, which means that they basically, their visual field has collapsed into a tunnel and they have a lot of blurry vision, but there's no prescription that will make it better except the learning lenses. So if you get a child and you don't know what to do with the child and they've got you know, the, the bright light issue and you know they've been under a lot of stress, giving them the learning lenses can actually open up the, the visual field within a couple days. And you'll they'll probably say something like, wow, this feels good, I, I like this. Oh, I'm seeing things a little more clearly. And when you go to a conventional optometrist or ophthalmologist, they'll walk away and say, well, he doesn't need a prescription, it's nothing. And this sometimes happens around the first grading period um, where we see this, this real collapse of the visual system and there isn't really a reason except we know it's probably some kind of PTSD, moral reflex, fear paralysis reflex, just really overriding the visual system. So any questions or comments about anything I've said? No. Okay. Uh, no, I don't think you missed anything. I think you've 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 got it. Uh, the reading and writing observations. Um, I would agree with those. I think those are really really good. 
and you know you're you're accenting left and right you know i'll just put this out there i don't know if it's in the sequence but i'm seeing a fair number of kids right now who have torticollis we are getting more too yeah. here we okay are, I, I would say we've had an influx of babies with torticollis yeah well um i think it's worth noting that um the regular allopathic care first of all probably doesn't even acknowledge it and what has worked really well for me and i know susan's we've talked about this is the cranial work and, okay, yeah. and that that's really and then when you get the beamer they can actually lay on the beamer at a low intensity and then they'll they'll get into a relaxation state with the beamer and then when you do cranial it's like having six hands instead of two so it's really yeah. nice to to have both of those i think there there are definitely some issues with the birth um, you know the industrial birth complex and it's things going on there but um, so you're seeing that too I'm seeing it more in school age kids actually uh, so they're still having that tick to the right or the left in terms of their neck and it's it's clearly torticollis but um, you know it's been around for a while so um, let's go on the eye appearance eyelid drooping that's great to note uh, the dullness the pupil size so we i i had questions in this area too okay um, if you would do what you did at the top um we don't know what that means when there's eyelid drooping <laughs> so if there is an eyelid droop what does that mean it means that there could be some neurological interference and so a deeper history would need to be taken you know the the medical term is called ptosis p-t-o-s-i-s and in, in the ptosis is it um, like and you have it here unilateral or bilateral if it's just one eye it could be more functional uh, but also you have to rule out any you know tumors or traumas toxicities stress you've got to take a, a little deeper history and you're gonna probably have to make a referral to a neuro ophthalmologist or a neurologist because now you're getting into the situation where there's something in the brain or something in the visual pathway that's not in, not allowing that eyelid to uh, work properly, and it's a uh, it's cranial nerve three. So um, there's something going on in the cranial nerve. Now you could also do some craniosacral therapy and see if you could uh, you know help help it that way but it is a red flag that there could be some neurological uh, impediment and that's where it becomes a medical intervention at least you have to rule out neurological disease and so cultivating a neurologist or a pediatric 
ophthalmologist or a neuro-ophthalmologist, these folks are going to be very allopathic. So, you know, there may be scans, there may be MRI, things like that. So it's, it's a very serious condition that needs to be uh, addressed quickly. Okay. Um, same question with the dullness. What should eyes look like and what would you notice if you saw dull eyes? I would do the pupil response to see if there's any digestion or integration of the light and the pupil would tell me that. But dull eyes mean means to me that there is a complete disconnect of the eyes with the brain and the body. And we actually see degrees of this in almost all the kids you refer to me. Because at some level, what has happened is the eyes have been left behind as it relates to the brain and the body. This requires visual stimulation. And as you've observed in the evaluations I do with kids, I'm looking for probes and prompts to see what would it take to get them connected. And it usually is pretty instantaneous. And then when they connect it, you see the, all these magical things happen. And really what it is, is just, we've gone online with the eyes, with the rest of the person. And so now all these things that weren't happening are happening. So what the dullness says to me is, okay, what can I try to see if we can get, get the eyes connected? And, you know, you've seen me do all these different things, whether it's vestibular, whether it's prisms, whatever, whatever it is, color therapy. And it's intuitive. You know, we don't know exactly what is going to work for each child, but that's why there's all these different, you look at every case that comes in and you go, wow, how did this, this really changed? So the dullness is the opportunity to say, we could make some really deep changes here by stimulating the visual system. Let's explore it. Let's, uh, let's try some things. And then if it's not really working, um, then probably the reflexes are so strong, the primitive reflexes, that you've got to somehow work indirectly. Or the other one that works well for me is the vestibular stimulation and then bringing in the vision. Um, but some of the table work you do with the reflexes and then bringing in the vision after that um, could be beneficial. So it's a, it's a diagnostic tool on where you, somewhere you need to enter the eyes. The dullness is telling you that. And then the pupil size is going to tell you, well, in the autonomic nervous system reflex, are they at all responsive to light? Because if they have any responsiveness, the pupil is going to constrict. A lot of kids just have a dilated pupil constantly that even if you shine the light to pen light towards their eyes, the pupil doesn't constrict. So um, those two go together really well. And then you can, uh, on the other, you could just make some notes um, the affect, the arousal, um, eye contact, 
you know, social engagement with, with the eyes. That's another one that I like to explore because that tells me the state of the, the nervous system. And, um, you know, if there's no social contact or eye contact, hmm, that tells me, you know, what they've been through. Okay, so for the pupil size itself, if you had to describe what a normal pupil size would look like for a kid or a person in relationship to the color around the eye, like uh-huh. how would you describe what a normal pupil should look like? So a normal pupil should look like the the percentage of the 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 color part of the eye to the pupil size the color part would be about 70% in size and the pupil would be about 30% in size okay and that would vary based on the when you shine the light it would go from 30% to maybe 20% so it's going to get smaller. So then the iris uh, would take up about 80% when the pupil is constricted. And what we could do is we could do a, a little workshop where um, we could work with each other. And the way you learn about the pupil size is by watching a lot of different pupils. So what we could do is uh, you know, each person, like we could, we could, I could measure each person and then everybody could watch and see, okay, this is a normal pupil size. This is what happens when the light strikes the pupil. It should get smaller. And then in dim light, now the pupil's going to grow a little bit. And it's just something you learn by seeing a lot of different pupil responses. Okay. But that it's some, be great. Yeah. But it's something you need to, you need to see, um, but I'm just giving you broad brushes, 70 to 30, and then 80 to 20 when, um, you know, when it's in brighter light. Um, what that would mean is that um, they, they tend to dwell primarily in the parasympathetic state. So they may be in a lower arousal um, their vestibular system would be underacting. Um, they would be in a state of uh, hypotone, low arousal, um, needing a lot to stimulate them to, to come out, to move forward. So it's, it's very parasympathetically driven at that point. You don't see as many of those. Sometimes it, it could mean that their sympathetic state is so worn down that they're now just, all they've got is parasympathetic. They would see um, poor eye contact, uh, maybe avert, averted vision where they're looking away a lot. Um, if you engage them with a, with a tracking uh, object that they would not be able to sustain the the fixation for more than like two or three seconds. And they would just, 
it's it's a little bit like an autistic behavior where you just withdraw and inwardize and you're basically in your own your own world so you're not really responding externally and when you look at the eyes there's just there's just no affect um again maybe you know um, that's something that as i'm evaluating some of the kids maybe that's one of the things that i can note you know where where's the aliveness dullness uh in in this particular person because again it's like the pupil response it comes from experience but you know if somebody's engaged or not engaged and um i would say that most of the kids that you refer to me they are on the dull side of their vision um and for whatever reason why you're referring them to me there's probably some dullness the only time that you would do that is if it's unequal pupils okay um and the pupils are responding differently um that would be a a sign of a referral um, okay but as long as it's bilateral equal then on that dilation no you wouldn't have to refer um i think just the things that you know how to do to teach self-regulation come into play at that point that's a that's a self-regulation case well i don't know if they need to go on the list i'll just share a couple of things and you can see if you want to put them there or somewhere else i think one would be um eye contact and length of eye contact um another would be uh the health of the neck you know the mobility of the neck the mobility of the neck as it relates to the eyes um those those are things that i tend to look at um i don't know whether they would fit there or you know you you need to worry about that but um those those are some things uh, i would say okay here are some other things again i don't know whether we'd go there when i uh sometimes if i'm gonna uh, test the moral reflex by dropping the head a little bit i do look at the pupil response um and if i'm testing the reflexes i am looking at the eyes and the fixation and the pupil response um because it tells me how tied in the visual system may be influenced by the lack of reflex integration um i can't tell you the number of kids where i'll i'll drop their head a little bit and i see this pupil dilation and it's like wow that's really telling me a lot about their sympathetic system um so i do look at the pupils when i'm doing a tracking test um or i'm watching the pupils if they're doing a cognitive uh exercise so i think it's just something to note to to bring in an observation of the pupil response while they're doing something okay even teaching the therapist to do that during treatment too during treatment yeah, yeah exactly yeah. right yeah, for sure mm-hmm. that, you know watching their body um so you know one of the things in my in my training was um one of my teachers was great at this is saying you have to watch the eyes 
while you're doing a three-dimensional, while you're doing a parquetry, you're doing a Marsden ball, you're doing, um, you know, those kinds of things. And it, it really was insightful for me. Even when I do some testing and I ask them to read something, I'm really looking at their eyes while they're reading. So, you know, I know you've got a lot of things you're looking at, the body and and I kind of bring the eye thing into it. So I would just say once in a while, can they maybe note what's happening in the eyes while you, you're giving them a, a treatment uh, task. Number one, the color therapy and the colors that would bring out more of a parasympathetic balance would be the blue-green, the blue or the purple overlays over their eyes. Number two would be uh, the, the sound of the palming with the humming. And that particular sound palming combination will get them to breathe more deeply, slow them down, open up the, the stress in the eyes. Number three would be putting on the learning lenses, especially if there's headaches, because sometimes part of the headaches could be their stress point is right at the, the distance where they're reading. And when they put on the learning lenses, the stress point moves closer to their face, which is what we want. So that could open up their peripheral vision and uh, you know relax their eyes. Outside the scope of um, the, the vision part would be um, imploring some essential oils, possibly. That, that's tricky because some of them um, may not be able to do that. As, have you, as you've seen in, in many of my sessions, the color therapy is a language that kids seem to understand and they relate to it even if their verbal skills are low or you know they might have some secondary cognitive stuff it just seems like they really get that energy energy medicine vibrational uh healing you know i was working with a kid yesterday who is pretty low functioning and we did color therapy and then i just had him do some drawing and all of a sudden he said oh i see a dolphin and he he actually drew this dolphin and his mom i mean we were just like blown away and there was an ot in the in our clinic also so um the color therapy seemed to open up something for him and i mean i don't know where that all came from but that's that non-linear state of like something really shifted in him so yeah, that's just wow. a, yeah it's just an example of you know potentially what we can do with these kids by coming out of the the narrow confines of what the allopathic approach has been and i know you're way out of the box as well but there's so there's such vastness out there if you do the frequency medicine frequency vibrational stuff just you know introducing it and seeing how their their system responds to it because it's pretty non-invasive and it penetrates their defense strat their defenses uh and they don't recoil as much uh or at all and then something gets reconnected so um that's why i think the color work and we're gonna we're gonna go more deeply into the color i know you had requested that 
but this is just yes. a just a, a superficial thing that in your toolbox with all the things you're already doing which are great adding these few little things if it's not working or you want to try something else they've worked for me so i i would you know share them with you Thank you for listening. I hope you learned something from the iClarity podcast show today. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave a review. See you here next time.